Well, good morning. I'm glad to be back here with you this morning um, and looking more at the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. The, uh, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers, and we read that after coming to faith, saving faith, they had experienced what the writer calls a great conflict of suffering, in which some of them were publicly ridiculed and insulted, and some had their belongings taken from them. Hadn't yet suffered death or shed blood, but they had suffered. And they'd endured all that, he says, with patience and joy, but now under increasing persecution and under the influence of the proliferation of false teachers, Many were now turning their eyes away from Christ, and, or at least were strongly tempted to do so. And they were tempted to return to the old covenant animal sacrifices uh, and uh, ceremonies. They'd come to a halt in the road, so to speak. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to them in particular, but it certainly was written for us. Because we may find ourselves facing very similar pressures and under, we already are under, under false teachings out in the world, uh, in the church. And so these things are for us. And in response to this pressure upon these believers, the writer of the Hebrews wrote this amazing and powerful exposition of the Old Testament scriptures and beginning right from the very first words of that book and all the way to the end of chapter 10, he exalts Christ. And he shows that not only who he was in his person, but shows that he, Christ Jesus, was better than the angels and greater than Moses. And he was a high priest that far greater than Aaron. And he offered a better sacrifice, bringing in a better hope. And he was the mediator of a better promise, of a better covenant established on better promises. And he himself set in motion all the gospel promises of the new covenant. And what a blessing that is. And he, he, he shows us that the old covenant sacrifices and ceremonies were nothing more than just a dim shadow of the reality and the glory and the power of the gospel of God in, through which he has saved sinners like you and I. And in chapter 12 then, the writer is calling these believers and calling us to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and to run our race with endurance and to turn eyes back to Jesus and fix our gaze upon him and consider once again his mighty efforts on their behalf and considering even the joy that was awaiting him and awaiting them at the consummation of all things. And in all of this, God was bringing his discipline upon them, his good and necessary discipline. And this writer, knowing that his exaltation of Christ and his call to them to repent would have brought grief 
and shame and deep conviction as they understood where they were in relation to their Savior, and he reminded them that no discipline was pleasant, but instead painful. But if the discipline of their own imperfect fathers had created a habit of reverence to their fathers, then certainly the discipline of God the Father was for their eternal profit. And he's calling on them to embrace this discipline. And as they were trained by it to reverence and obedience, and they walked in this discipline, then the peaceful fruit of righteousness would appear in their lives. And so we come to Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17, where the writer gives us some specific instruction. Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it, the blessing, diligently with tears. Please join me in prayer. Father, you have preserved your good word for us, and we need these the words that you have preserved here in this good book of Hebrews. And please use these words to help us and strengthen us and encourage us for our day so that we know how to move forward toward you and how to encourage each other and how even in our own place in the church to help lift up the feeble knees and and the weak hands and... and, uh, Pursue peace and holiness. Father, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So verses 12 and 13 again. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. So here's a word picture of the present condition of many of these Jewish believers. Hands hanging down, inactive, knees feeble and weak, and they've generally come to a halt, and any progress they're making is limping. And forward progress here is fraught with potential for further injury. Why? Because there were obstructions and pitfalls in the road. The solution, reinvigorate the hands and the feet and make the path straight. Now, what's the purpose of this effort? It's to prevent the lame, those just limping along, just barely making progress toward Christ, 
from further injury, from being dislocated, as it were, so that healing can begin. Dislocated. This, this word means to literally turn out or to twist out, like a bone being twisted out of joint. It's a medical term. And, and so these Jewish believers, these limping believers, were on the verge of being turned out of the way, turned out away from Christ. So the reader calls for action to be taken, for someone to take action to prevent further injury and to then bring healing and restoration to these lame believers. So the question is here, who is to take action? Well, the pastors and the elders for sure, but the verbs in these two verses, strengthen and make straight, are in the plural. So the writer is saying, you all are to strengthen, and you all are to make the path straight. In other words, all of you need to do your part here. This is a community project. It's a church project. Everyone is called to participate. Now, you might wonder why I would emphasize this. Shouldn't we just leave it to the elders to solve all the problems and then maybe sit back and grumble at them when they don't do what we think they ought to do? Well, they do have their part, and they have their important part, but frankly, they aren't able to solve every problem. And there would be fewer problems to solve if all of us did our part. So, in a sense, all of us always have a part in what's going on in the church and its solution. And this book of Hebrews is written directly to the people in the churches. And these plural verbs call for community action. And, and you see this in uh, chapter 13, verses 7 and 17, for instance, when the writer is directly addressing the people in the churches to imitate the faith of their leaders and to submit to and follow their leaders. And in chapter 10, verse 24, here the, the writer calls the people in the church as, to, to, as they're coming to the church on the Lord's Day, to actually pause and consider how they might stir up love and good works among each other. That's the kind of active participation that I'm trying to, to, to explain and get out that I think the, the author here is talking about. And so the actions taken to restore the church should be led by the pastors and the elders and the mature believers standing right beside them, assisting them. But the church as a whole, each one acting out of repentance and faith, was called here to take action to reinvigorate and make the path straight. You know, we sometimes say that God will preserve his church, and he certainly does. But most of the time, it is through the people in the churches rising up in repentance to obey him. And this is not works righteousness. It is simply acting out of faith in Jesus Christ, out of faith that is real, 
Because real faith brings forth real works of faith. And these works prove that faith is alive and not dead. So the first order of business then was to reinvigorate the hands which were hanging down in the feeble knees. And the writer is actually quoting uh, Isaiah 35, verse 3, which reads like this, Strengthen limp hands and give courage to the knees of the stumbling. So in this, in, in this book of Isaiah, God is commanding that prophet to strengthen the weak and, in, and the discouraged through proclaiming prophecies of the coming Messiah. And you can read on uh, all, all the way to verse 8 where that's exactly what he does. And, and these prophecies here in Isaiah 35, he's describing the very works that Jesus came and did. And so any thoughtful Jew hearing this brief reference to Isaiah 35 would have been able to grab a hold of what he's saying and be encouraged by it because the Messiah had come. He had actually come, he had actually fulfilled those very words, and he had died for them. So these words from Isaiah 35 then also reinforced the call for them to turn their eyes back to Jesus Christ that we see in verse 1 of chapter 12. And there's no better way to be reinvigorated and to be encouraged and to be strengthened to get back up and start to move forward again than to look at our Lord and Savior and to fix our eyes upon him. That is what we must do and we must keep doing in order to keep moving forward. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The next order of business was to make straight paths for the feet. And that admonition also builds on Isaiah 35 as well, because verse 8 of Isaiah 35 says this, And a roadway will be there, a highway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. And the unclean will not pass by on it, but it will be for him who walks in that way. So there is a path, there is a road, there's a highway of holiness, and, and those that are walking on it are the holy, meaning the saints, the cleaned ones, the, pure, the ones that are purified by the blood of Christ. Us, redeemed sinners, are on the highway of holiness, and these Jewish believers were on the same highway, and that highway is leading them straight into the arms of Jesus Christ. So what in the world would it mean to make that path straight? Is the writer out of his mind here? Is he telling them to change the course of the road and straighten out some of the turns that maybe were difficult for them? No. We can't improve the road. We can't improve the way it goes. And we better not try to change it or improve it. We can't. And... As well, this path, this road, this highway is not a rubberized surface in a professional sports arena. It's a path that leads right through real life, through joy and sorrow, 
often through great difficulties and trials and pain and hardships and persecution. And it winds its way up high mountains and down into steep valleys and it crosses rivers and, and, and deserts. The path, the highway is not easy. It's not as easy as the Broadway of the world appears to be. Uh, and, and the Broadway, but the Broadway leads down, sometimes very gently down to destruction. But the redeemed on the highway press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, verse 14. So the Greek words translated here as make straight actually mean to make smooth or level or firm and free from obstructions. They're not straightening things out that are crooked. They are removing obstructions and filling in pitfalls. So here's another question then. If this is the highway to holiness, how in the world could there be such bad road conditions? Why are there obstructions and pitfalls here on this highway of holiness? Well, the problem's not with the construction of the road. The problem's with the redeemed people walking on the road. They have carelessly and sometimes maliciously created pitfalls and placed obstacles in the road. And so the church led by the pastors and elders and the mature believers standing right beside them, is called here to rise up and make the path smooth and firm and free of, of obstructions so that the lame and the limping may not fur be further dislocated and turned out of the way, but instead healed and restored to health. Now, I'm struck by the way that this language corresponds to how Paul addresses disputes in the church in Rome over what he calls doubtful opinions, apparently over the dietary laws of the old covenant. And those disputes were wreaking havoc in that church. And he admonishes them like this, Romans 14.10. Why do you show contempt for your brother? Romans 14.13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Romans 15, 1 and 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So stop tearing your brother down. Stop despising your brother. Stop causing him to stumble and fall. So there's a serious failure of basic Christian love in that church in Rome. A failure that far outweighed the importance, the lightweight importance of this dispute over meat and drink. And Paul's strongest admonition, if you read carefully, were pointed at the strong, at those who understood the truth about the, these dietary matters. And so if, if a dispute over such a lightweight matter can result in stumbling blocks and causing, causes to fall being placed by the strong in front of the weak, how much more then in a dispute over the most important matter of all, 
that's here in Hebrews, the gospel itself. So the call to clear the road and make it smooth and firm is a call to repent of despising those who are weak in the faith and who don't understand the truth or whose vision has somehow been clouded and to repent of tearing them down and mocking them and to repent of creating pitfalls and strewing toe stubbers and ankle turners and big old rocks out in the roadway. The race of the Christian life is not a contest between individual believers where the strong and the swift win and all others are losers. We are contending for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We are. But our brother and our sister is not our enemy. In fact, our love or our lack of love for one another is a primary evidence of whether or not we actually are disciples of Christ. John 13, 35. And so this, this imperative of love must inform our debates and our disputes, especially those debates over the gospel. Because real love moves real disciples to stop and help the brother who's weak in the faith the one who doesn't understand, the one who has stumbled or is injured. Love does not run past him. Love does not laugh at his weakness or throw stumbling blocks in his way. Love does not gloat over his fall and despise him. Real love leads real disciples in lowliness of mind to esteem others better than themselves and to look out for the interests of others. So the writer of Hebrews here is admonishing the church to rise up and make the path smooth and firm and free from obstructions so that the lame and the limping may not be turned out of the way, but instead healed and restored to health and faith. And this then leads to verse 14. Pursue peace with all people. Pursue peace. In other words, press hard after it with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain it. And again, it's a plural verb. All of you, all of you pursue peace. This is a collective problem. A problem extending beyond any local church to many churches of Jewish believers. A problem impacting everyone in those churches in some way. And so pursue peace with all people. All people, yes, all around us, but the context here is peace among the brothers, all of the brothers. And so this is a very practical admonition that directly brings focus onto the problem. Peace restored involves confession and repentance for all those who have disturbed the peace. And when people are reconciled and relationships are restored and true peace is established between them, then minds are cleared and emotions are moved out of the way so that teaching of the truth can then happen and be received. Galatians 6.1 tells us that it's the spiritually mature 
that should be at work in a spirit of gentleness helping to restore those who have sinned. And so here we see pastors and elders and other mature believers acting for the good of the church. Pursue peace with all people and pursue holiness without which you will not see the Lord. Hmm. Again, all of you pursue holiness and press hard after it with earnestness and diligence in order to obtain it. Why? If you don't, you won't see the Lord. Pretty serious consequence. Pursue holiness. Holiness means to be sanctified, to be set apart to God for his use. Separated away from sin to walk with God in holiness. And there's a similar passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To be pure in heart is to be holy. Be cleansed from sin, to be set apart to him, away from sin, to his righteousness, for his use. And there can be no greater blessing for us as redeemed sinners than to be able to look God in the face and not be consumed by his wrath. So purity and holiness is something to be pursued because without it, we will not see God. So if a man is holy, is he sinless? No. But it means that the trajectory of his life as a forgiven sinner is pointed directly at Jesus Christ. And it means that the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in his life. The fruit of the Spirit is evident But what does it mean for us to pursue holiness? It sounds like works, works righteousness, but it isn't. The pursuit of holiness is continuing in the same way that we began our walk with Jesus through repentance and faith. We pursue holiness by continuing to walk in repentance and faith. To, to endure under temptation and obey Jesus Christ instead of our carnal passions is to pursue holiness. To be doers of the word and not just hearers only is to pursue holiness. To crucify the flesh is to pursue holiness. To forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven us is to pursue holiness. The pursuit of holiness and peace by everyone in the church are foundational to the restoration project and the reinvigoration of the church and of these, these limping believers and the removal of all the obstacles that are in their path. And then flowing from the call to pursue holiness, this, the writer of Hebrews then lays his finger on four particular ways that he sees that these Jewish believers need to pursue holiness in. And the first one is in verse 15. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully, lest anyone fall short 
of the grace of God, looking carefully. It means to observe and examine the state of things and give attention to what's going on. It can also be translated as see to it. See to it. And it's also a plural verb, so it's pointed at all of them. In other words, all of you are to see to it that no one, not a single person among you, falls short of the grace of God. So the writer here is calling the entire church to wake up and pay attention to the state of things. Certainly, he's calling the pastors and the elders to do the work of shepherding and overseeing the mature believers standing alongside them and to carefully examine the well-being of the household of God and take action so that no one falls short of the grace of God. But here again, we're challenged. Fall short of the grace of God? Have you lost your mind? How could you be write such a thing when we have such strong scriptural assurance of God's grace for sinners given and never taken back? Right here in the book of Hebrews. Well, maybe Titus 2 verses 11 to 14 give us some insight here. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So the grace of God teaches holiness, and it calls believers to pursue holiness. If we won't learn from God's grace and embrace what it clearly teaches, then that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly and righteously and godly, we will fall short. We will lack the fullness and the potential of what the grace of God can do in our lives. We'll be like those that Peter writes about, who have not pursued holiness, who have resisted sanctification, and therefore have become short-sighted, even to blindness, he says, and forget that they're cleansed from their sins. 2 Peter 1, verses 9 and 10. So, if the church does not proclaim what the grace of God clearly teaches it's part, as part of its instruction and discipleship, then those under its care will fall short of the grace of God. They will remain as immature babes, unable to digest hard truths, easily deceived by false teachers, and weak, blown about by strange teachings that blow through the church. So, see to it that no one in the church falls short of the grace of God. The second way that the writer is calling these believers to pursue holiness is this, also in verse 15, looking carefully lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble 
and by this many become defiled. Have you ever seen this happen in a church? Have you ever become defiled by a root of bitterness that sprang up in someone else's heart and spread to you? Have you ever allowed a root of bitterness to spring up in your heart and then were horrified as it quickly defiled others, kind of like a wildfire? Have you ever allowed a root of bitterness to spring up in your heart and then found yourself rejoicing and glad for the devastation it wrought in the lives of those that hurt you? Bitterness spreads immediately when offense is not handled correctly by the one who is offended and becomes bitter. Instead of privately confronting those that sinned against them, they instead tell everyone else, and that's how everyone else becomes defiled. Now, why bitterness here in Hebrews? Could it be that the strong who understood the gospel Again, here we're despising the weak who didn't understand or whose vision was now cloudy, who were tempted to go back. Uh, And then because of all the hurt and pain, the, the weak despising the strong in return. Contempt for each other, leading to stumbling blocks and causes to fall, being thrown out into the path and many then tripping over them. The response then, again, pastors and elders, mature believers standing beside them, carefully examining the well-being of the household of God and seeing to it that roots of bitterness are not allowed to grow, rebuking, instructing, discipling in love. And the whole church participating and following the, the instructions of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18. We need each other. We need each other to, to confront each other about roots of bitterness and not pass those on. The third way the church is needed to pursue holiness is this in verse 16. Looking carefully, lest there be any fornicator. Like bitterness, it's interesting to me, at least, that this that fornication, sexual immorality, would show up here in Hebrews as part of his call to Jewish believers to repent and turn their eyes back on Jesus. What did it have to do with this lack of faith, this gospel problem? Well, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, One could very easily offer sacrifices in the temple and feel that, hey, I'm okay, even though I'm off pursuing these sinful activities. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing, and their teaching led in that direction to outwardly perform ceremonies and feel like I'm okay before God without addressing the real problems. But it is impossible for us on the highway of holiness. For those of us in relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot do this. He sees us outwardly, and he sees us inwardly too. 
and we cannot escape his eye. And sin gets in the way of our fellowship with him, and he won't let us get away with it. And so bad theology contributes to bad behavior, and bad behavior uh, hides itself under bad theology. So here again, see to it. Look carefully at what's going on, and pastors and elders and mature believers standing right with them must follow Paul's example um, in Thessalonica, where, where he considered this topic of sexual immorality so important and so vital that he instructed those new believers about this matter in the short time that he had with them as part of the whole counsel of God. And then when he had to leave, he wrote back and reminded them about the importance of this matter. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 through 8, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. It's even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor and not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity but in sanctification. Consequently, he who sets this aside is not setting aside man, but the God who gives us his Holy, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then finally, the fourth way that the writer encouraged and admonished the churches to pursue holiness is found in, also in verse 16. Looking carefully, lest there be any profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, for changing his mind, though he sought it diligently with tears. So a profane person is the opposite of a holy person. The holy person is set apart to God. The profane person is set apart to the world. The holy person loves God. The profane person loves the world. The profane person places little value, no value, on things that have eternal value. And Esau is set forward as, as an example of a profane man because he sold his birthright. He sold his inheritance for a bowl of soup. He had no problem trading something of lifelong, multi-generational value for one meal to satisfy a hunger that would soon come back to him. He was focused on the here and now and didn't consider the long-term consequences of his actions. And when he wanted to change his mind and recant his foolish decision, he found that he had made an irrevocable deal. He couldn't take it back. Another example of the, this consequence of profane thinking is the prodigal son who 
demanded and received his portion of the inheritance, and then he went and he wasted it all. And when he returned, his father rightly rejoiced. But the father responded to the older brother's complaint by saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. Now, the main point of that parable, of course, is that the one who was dead was alive again, and the one who had been lost was now found. Praise God. But the prodigal had wasted his inheritance. It was gone, and he could not get the money back. And the point here in Hebrews seems to be that profane living brings irrevocable consequences. For instance, we see this today. The body of a young person addicted to drugs soon wastes away and looks like the body of an old person. Have you seen that? Teeth gone, hair gone, weight lost to the point of skin and bones, hunched over, mind gone, dignity gone, spiraling down to an early death, all for a few moments of drug-induced euphoria. And the profane use of sexuality also often leads to irrevocable consequences, diseases that sterilize, incapacitate, and sometimes kill. Children body into the world in a way God never intended giving your body away for just a moment and, and then reaping a lifelong problem. And now we see young people are mutilating their bodies and taking ir, uh, drugs that cause irrevocable changes that can't be undone. Irrevocable consequences resulting from profane choices. It's just mind-boggling. But all of us are subject to this, and we need to be careful that we don't despise those caught up in this. On the other hand, sanctified choices lead to life and to health and to goodness and light and happiness. So this kind of reckless thinking may have been another reason why some were turning away from Christ. They were throwing their eternal future, secure in Christ, for a momentary experience of worldly pleasure or from an escape of momentary persecution. So pastors and elders and mature believers standing right alongside them are called here to see to it that profane thinking is combated with the truth and a calling for repentance and faith. So the seriousness of all these things just amplifies the fact that professing believers, professing without sanctification, will not see the Lord. Faith without works is dead. The work of the Lord brings life and repentance and faith. It's an indicator now, we don't face this same exact theological 
problem and challenge to the gospel like the ancient Jewish believers did. We're not tempted to go back and anim offer animal sacrifices, but we face other challenges to the gospel that, that are just as deadly that lure us to trust in something other than the death and the burial and the resurre resurrection of Christ. And thank God then for the writings of Paul and Peter and James and Jude that speak to many of these other kinds of dangers that we need to engage in. But, you know, this good book of Hebrews, written to Jewish believers, lays out a theological explanation of the work and sacrifice of Christ that actually applies to all kinds of departures from the gospel. And thank God for that book, this book. It, it has helped me tremendously. So, this is a strong call to, to rise up into holiness and to pursue it. And it's discipline. The Lord's discipline descending upon this, these believers for their good, and it's for us too. And, and it cuts deep, and it brings shame and sorrow. But the gospel ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. And so there's every good reason for hope, every good reason to engage in this effort to strengthen and reinvigorate the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and to clear away all these obstructions that have been put out there in the path. Because as we embrace the chastening of the Lord and are trained by it, we have a promise that the good fruit of righteousness will appear in our lives, first in the bud, and then in the flower, and then at the right time, the ripened fruit appears and it's enjoyed by everyone and it gives glory to God. I, I just praise God for this book of Hebrews and his how it expresses his mercy toward me. And I I have participated enough in these kinds of problems and so I I have I've given my elders I want to be someone who builds up and not tears down. I'm done with that. So please, please get on me when you see me acting in ways that I shouldn't. So when we feel the discipline, we're under the discipline of the Lord, we can be comforted because he was made like his brothers, us, in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, a covering over every one of their sins. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who were tempted. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. For we have such a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and who was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. And let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, so that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. Let's pray. <clears throat>
Father, I thank you that you have preserved your word and every bit of it for us. I pray that you would apply this word to our hearts and lift us up and set us back in our feet if that's what we need, that you would call us to repentance and faith if that's what we need, and that in every way and in every case, that because of your word, we would turn our eyes and fix them upon our Lord and Savior because he is our hope. And through him, we have obtained great and precious promises. And even as we hold on to him, we know that he is holding on to us. And that's where our hope is. And so I thank you in his name. Amen.